Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. Don't forget you can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. So if at any point between 10 and 1, you think, oh, what shall I do? Put the radio on, and you can hear this sort of thing happening live. Coming up on today's episode, a pretty extraordinary chat with the American intellectual, king of linguistics uh, as well, Noam Chomsky, on Vladimir Putin... And we had a bit of an argument about whether or not he was trying to excuse the, the uh, invasion of Ukraine. We talked about Jeremy Corbyn, and we had a bit of an argument about whether or not Jeremy Corbyn won the 2017 election. And then the end of the human race as we know it. So quite quite the chat coming up with Noam Chomsky in just a moment. But first, as we always do on a Tuesday, it's time for these two. In a world of politics... Without the boring bits, get ready for Blockbuster Debate on Times Radio. One is the wise voice of experience. The other, the young genius learning from the master. Together they are Finkelstein and Zeffman. Daniel Finkelstein and Henry Zeffman on Times Radio. Yes, the Batman and Robin of news. We say a very good morning to Danny Finkelstein. Body, Danny. Good morning. It wasn't me. <laughs> and a good morning to you, Henry. Uh, good morning. It also wasn't me. So to be clear, chocolate has gone missing. The world's most expensive chocolate has gone missing from the Times newsroom. And you're both saying it wasn't you. Well, I work in the Times parliamentary office. As you know, That's Matt, true. the fridge there is a You would not take anything out of it. put anything in it, let alone take anything out of it. One of our colleagues, who will remain nameless, started at the Times in summer of 2019 and tried to clear out that fridge and then sort of reopened it a week later and it, it had sort of green sludge everywhere and I think the door was slammed and has never been reopened. Yeah, it's a it's an appalling thing, that fridge. There's there's sort of a bottle of milk that someone bought during the 2017 election <laughs> still in there. And Daddy, it definitely wasn't used on the chocolate. No, I don't, I don't believe... I, I, I believe I've got an alibi. I don't think I was in the uh, <laughs> office. I, I'm just kind of trying to have a sort of... Uh, I mean, obviously... I my sort of prime suspect is the person writing the article, the feature on the chocolate. Because what is a better introduction to the column than the story of this theft? It's fantastic. Oh, that's um, a good point. Yes, we don't know. Definitely. I mean, I, I'm I'm neither Columbo nor Columbo's wife, but that's got to be <laughs> one of the suspects. I just kind of think if I was responsible for the world's most expensive chocolate, I don't think I'd put it in our shared fridge. Given that, as we, you know, well, it's not as if the office is incredibly hot either, right? so no. it wasn't, wasn't going to melt. No, it may have been that may have been keep it refrigerated. It might have been. Yeah, I mean, we have to wait for this article to appear so that we can learn all the details. Well, once the CC, they are talking about look, looking at the CTV footage. So hopefully, well, we'll I'm get, we'll a bit get dubious about that because I lost a uh, somebody stole one of my laptops once, and there was no CCTV of that. Oh, so I'm pretty miffed if they uh, managed. I don't think it was the same person. As Did the, you put it in the fridge, Daddy? <laughs> <laughs> that'll be it that's the problem 
Uh, well, I, look, I look forward to the uh, to the true crime podcast uh, six part series that we will no doubt do on the uh, on the loss of the chocolate. Right now, Danny, uh, we need to talk about the fact that it turns out you are Mystic Meg. Let's wind the clock back to what happened this time last week. I think that he's not really the deputy prime minister, even though he seems to be Oliver Dowden. Is the interesting thing will be whether or not Rishi decides to make Oliver Dowden now the deputy prime minister. That is, I think that is quite an important role. It's it, it's sometimes regarded as sort of irrelevant, but actually it can be a critical political relationship inside the past where it hasn't been so much. So there we are. If you want to know what's going to happen, uh, just listen to the Danny on Times Radio. Uh, Danny, you were right. Dominic Raab was gone and Oliver Dowden became deputy prime minister. I'd be disappointed to win too many accolades for that. I think it was sort of fairly obvious. A bit, I, I, I'm still being congratulated by people for having eight years ago said Rishi Sunak would one day be uh, prime minister. And in fact, although we did turn out, I did turn out to be correct, that it turned out to be more uh, treacherous uh, path for him than I'd actually imagined. So in fact, my my uh, my prediction was sort of secretly wrong, really, uh, even though it looks like it was right. Uh, so uh, I wasn't really looking the crystal ball. I was telling you what was already the case. I mean, anybody who watches Rishi uh, and Oliver over the last five years will know that is a, a pairing uh, and um, that uh, he is as maybe not quite as reliant on uh, on uh, Oliver's advice as David Cameron was on George's, but um, but he certainly regards him as his closest friend. I mean, he said that as much as he said that uh, straightforwardly to me once. Um, and so I didn't regard great powers of prediction. Well, we're going to congratulate you anyway, Danny, because, you know, given the, the, the guff that we have for the show a lot of the time, it was good to have somebody who knows what's going on. Henry? Can I ask you, Danny, Oliver Dowden, I mean, when I was speaking to people in government asking, you know, and this is absolutely supporting what you said last week, I said, well, what new responsibilities is Oliver Dowden going to have? And they basically said, no, he's just going to keep doing exactly the job that he does at the moment, coordinating government policy from the Cabinet Office and other things like that, chairing committees and so on, but with this extra title. But, of course, one thing that he will do is stand in for Rishi Sunak at Prime Minister's Questions. And um, something that I think people probably won't know about Oliver Dowden, but Danny will know and will have sat uh, in some of these rooms with him, is that Oliver Dowden has prepared every Conservative leader since Michael Howard, other than Liz Truss, for Prime Minister's Questions. And it's just an amazing, um, rare, I think, example of someone who, who you know, has, has written the jokes to actually have to deliver the jokes and the attacks. And I just wonder, Danny, whether you think he'll be any good at that sort of thing. Not his job. Yes, his job isn't jokes. I, I've actually been doing it since John Major, and I. I'm not sure <laughs> well, I'm not, you, you'll be deputy prime minister next. Except that I didn't. I didn't help yeah, either. Yeah, 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 yeah. Johnson or Liz Truss, but I'm not sure that or Ian Duncan Smith actually. But I'm not sure that I would um, necessarily be great if I was doing it. So, but what what Oliver Down is particularly good at is uh, understanding the mood of the House of Commons. Actually, David Lidington was good at this too. So he will say, "I think this is how that will land with." Uh, conservative colleagues or with the other side uh, this is what will happen if you say that he's good at working it out but being good at working it out isn't the same as having to deliver it yourself naturally um, you know but I, I've always had a very high view of Oliver Dowden's in uh, political intelligence I've often said that there you know I have certain friends I'd go to for advice about certain different things and if I had a kind of problem of trying to work out what parliament will think what parliament will do what the political way through of this is i would talk uh, to to oliver dowden and i remember he was 
you know, he said to me about before um, when he, when he supported Boris Johnson for the leadership, and I was, to, to put it mildly, a bit surprised given his politics and mine. He said to me, um, "We're in a room being squashed by two walls: uh, the Liberal Democrats and the Brexit Party. They're coming towards us, cl- getting closer and closer. There's a tiny window, and the only person we've got who can climb up, shin up the wall, climb through the little window, and switch off the lever that's closing the doors is Boris Johnson." It was very clever of him to have worked that out. And it was a very good metaphor. He's very bright about those kind of things. And goes back to the article, Henry, that the, we, the, well, we can labour, if you like, the uh, the three, the, the triple-headed red box piece. Yeah, poor Robert Jenrick sitting there thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, clearly not quite as close to Rishi Sunak as Oliver Dowden, but still. Rishi still, Sunak, uh, Oliver Dowden, Robert Jenrick, the the, 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 the the rising stars of the Tory party were quite surprised when they backed uh, Boris Johnson for the, for the leadership. And now they all are... Yeah, he's around the cabinet table. He's he? around the cabinet table, but on the children's table at the end. Home secretary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, now, Henry, we need to talk about. Uh, we could talk about something else that happened on the show last week uh, when you uh, dropped the Tommy Lee Jones anecdote on us. Remind us why do we end up talking about Tommy Lee Jones? Uh, you played the theme tune from Men in Black, which That's I right. didn't know was the theme tune from Men in Black because you'd and never it unleashed seen. minutes of. Amazing banter. Which led to you uh, trying to disguise your lack of knowledge about Men in Black to telling us about... How could you tell? <laughs> you'd, uh, you'd said well, sorry, that. sorry. Yeah, Tommy Lee Jones, who, of course, uh, co-stars in Men in Black with Will Smith, yeah. uh, was a college roommate at Harvard, I think, with Al Gore, and uh, then uh, was a sort of major campaigner for his 2000 presidential election and indeed placed his name in nomination at the 2000 yeah. Democratic National Convention. Which we can hear now. I lived with him for four years, and what did we do? We, we shot pool, and we watched Star Trek when maybe we should have uh, been studying for exams. Uh, he'd challenge me to shooting contests. Uh, we'd see who could hit a tin can from the farthest away, and I tell you, it was usually Al. We did the complicated things you'd expect college kids to do. Uh, we'd catch a loose cow. The, uh, go canoeing and hunting and chasing through the woods with coon dogs in the middle of the night. Which got us thinking about uh, election endorsements because obviously it didn't. I mean, it didn't help Al Gore ultimately having uh, Tommy Lee Jones on board. Um, so here are a couple of others that I really like. These. This is uh, Kenny Everett at a Conservative conference um, telling some jokes. I think the Tories weren't hugely thrilled about afterwards. And it's a great honour, ladies and gentlemen, to present one of this country's great political thinkers, Mr. Kenny Everett! Let's bomb Russia! Let's kick Michael Foote's stick away! After this performance, election campaigning in Britain will never be quite the same again. We'll probably do with a bit more of that. And then, of course, there was the uh, when Ed Miliband tried to get down with the kids and went to see Russell Brand. What I heard Ed Miliband say is if we speak, he will listen. So on that basis, I think we've got no choice but to take decisive action to end the danger of the Conservative Party. David Cameron might think I'm a joke, but I don't think there's anything funny about what the Conservative Party have been doing to this country, and we have to stop them. You've got to vote Labour. Astonishingly, the Conservatives went on to secure a majority. Uh, Danny, do celebrity endorsements ever work? 
This would rem reminded me when I was working for the Conservative Party and we wanted to get some celebrities for our party conference, but literally nobody would agree to do it. We ended up with Mike Reed, uh, Mike Yarwood and Rick Wakeman. And then the Labour Party had their conference and they had Nelson Mandela. Um, <laughs> Um, I, 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 I'm not convinced they do really. Um, I, look, I, you know, traditional social psychology will say um, you get somebody and people will buy. I always used to to be puzzled by those kind of awnings for the garden, and they had the police chief John Walker <laughs> who used to endorse them, and you thought, why is he endorsing them? And somebody said, oh, it's because people think the people who install those are crooks. Uh, and that's why they have it. So there's often a, a subtle reason. Or they had Robert Mark with Goodyear tyres, right? So the police chief as well. So, um, there's so, you know, if you do it subtly, you can impart a subtle message. I remember the Labour Party had Dr. Leg from EastEnders. Um, <laughs> and, you, know, you have to remember, actually, he was really an actor. He was talking about the NHS. Uh, but subtly, so it, it can work. But, I, you know, I think it's slightly overestimated. And often... Um, you you work really hard to get the celebrities, and then you, the people you get, you know, aren't that impressive to people. Um, and about uh, in the day in the papers, Henry, um, Keir Starmer's in the papers, Emily Atak off of I'm a Celebrity and uh, the In Betweeners. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that is an example of where it can work because he was with Emily Atak and Georgia Harrison, who've both spoken a lot about violence against women and girls, and done in Emily Atak's case documentary about it, and I think. Um, there they are being used as a gateway to uh, for Starmer to speak about issues that matter to them and matter to people who follow them to hear about those issues. Um, I think just saying such and such is famous and likes me, therefore you should vote Labour is, um, is ridiculous. I mean, I remember actually on the 2019 general election day, I think it was 2019 rather than 2017, um, Labour, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour, got a load of celebrities to just tweet Labour, full stop. Um... And it looked a bit ridiculous, and and they lost. Um, I mean, not not why they lost, but I ju I'm just very sceptical that anyone really cares. Yeah. One I'm quite interested in is Rod Stewart, who seems to become an accidental uh, figure in politics. In that he he's not been lined up as far as we know by Keir Starmer and the Labour Party. But when he phoned into the uh, Sky News and was very critical of the Tories, having been a supporter of the Tories, and he's he's so famous because sometimes the sort of people that political parties get as people who've been on the telly for a couple of years, maybe. And it's like, oh yeah, were they in season four of New Tricks or season yeah. five? Yeah. <laughs> Whereas, you know, Rod Stewart coming out and, you know, phoning in and being very passionate about the NHS probably does have a tiny impact a little bit. Yeah, but I think what was what was um, powerful or impactful or whatever about Rod Stewart's um, phoning into Sky News was just that he was very eloquent. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, you know, in his sort of... Eloquent in his sort of authentic despair. And also, you know, because Rod Stewart's well so well-known and you'll have seen him on Parkinson or Graham Norton or whatever, you sort of have a sense of him. And so you can sort of um, understand his character and, um, you know, what might be driving him to say certain things and, and, you know, sense that he feels strongly strongly moved in that case about the stories of the NHS that Sky were running that day. Whereas, you know, some actor of Corrie who you've never seen except in character, it's like imploring you to vote for someone. I just think most people will think, uh, okay, what, what, you know, why should why I listen? Should I take any yeah. Because that Tommy Lee Jones thing, what he was trying to do was to say Al Gore's just a regular guy. Although, unfortunately, this was slightly undermined by the fact that he was a regular guy who had a Hollywood movie star as his roommate. <laughs> I'm not... You know, at Harvard. So I'm not sure um, it quite achieved the effect 
um, that people had hoped for. But the thing about what Rod Stewart was doing was saying, look, here is an example of someone moving from la- from the Tories to Labour. And momentum definitely does have an effect. People are looking around to feel that other people are doing the same thing. Although generally, they wanted to be other people like them. I suppose that Rod Stewart's advantage in that respect is, despite his fame, he does seem like an everyman sort of character, so people can associate with him. Um, but sometimes people are so incredibly... Fun. I think Russell Brand actually had this effect. You know, who's like Russell Brand, right? Not not very many people. So therefore, him coming out for you, does that really um, make you feel, well, I'm a bit like Russell Brand, so I'll do it too? <laughs> I suppose the only, the, the only counterpoint is on, you know, like Storm, around Jeremy Corbyn, Stormzy and some other young music acts mainly did create a buzz amongst younger people where they thought that something exciting was happening. It obviously didn't pan out like that. But it definitely helped to add to the sense that, that something was happening. I think they were the symptom rather than the cause, though. I mean, okay. you know, I, I think a lot of young musicians with left-wing politics were excited by Jeremy Corbyn because a lot of young people with left-wing politics were were excited by Jeremy Corbyn. So, yeah, I'm sure they, you know, catalyzed it a bit, although, you know, youth turnout was still sort of much lower than in other generations, etc. But maybe it would have been even lower if they'd not had some of these endorsements. But, yeah, I think it was... Symptom, symptom rather than cause. By the way, Labor just on... Red wedge. I mean, Labour had red wedge, you know, in, in the 80s, and they still lost. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not saying I think these are kind of bad things, but one, the other problem with, with, with when you get celebrities, a bit like also uh, when, you, when you act with animals or you work with children, <laughs> to use uh, unfortunate parallels, you, you, you're not in control anymore, yeah. right? So um, it's a bit like when you introduce uh, so-called real people into your uh, party political broadcasts. And I, I you know, always remember um, doing a big press conference where somebody was going to join the Conservative Party from the Liberal Democrats. And the first press question was uh, to him was, uh, when did you join the Liberal Democrats? To which he responded, oh, I didn't. Um, <laughs> and then the press conference was a total disaster. You know, when you're people who are, who are outside the kind of game of politics yeah. don't sometimes know what the kind of helpful answer is and they can give unhelpful ones well we'll see if it makes any uh, make, makes any difference uh, if there are I imagine there'll be I mean at the very least June Tsar Pong will probably come out for Labour because you know she helped swing the referendum for Remain Right, let's turn our attention now to, uh, in fact, it's William Hague's column in The Times today. He uh, kicks off his column today with a, uh, uh, talking about a classic episode of Yes Minister, where Sir Humphrey Appleby explains the constraints on a Prime Minister when appointing ministers. Bernard, there are only 630 MPs. If one party has just over 300, it forms a government. Of that 300, 100 are too old and too silly, 100 are too young and too callow, which leaves just about 100 MPs to fill 100 governmental posts. There's no choice at all. They've had no selection, no training. We have to do the job for them. Henry, are our politicians getting worse? Uh, well, look, I've been covering Westminster for seven years uh, with a with a break. And um, if you'd asked me at the start, um, are our politicians getting worse? I'd have, I'd have thought, oh, these nostalgists harking back to the days when, you know, Dennis Healy had seen war service and Roy Jenkins could write magisterial biographies. And, you know, I'm sure most MPs then were, were sort of equivalently mediocre or whatever. I think I've changed my mind on that. I think, I think, um, I, I often say to people who, who you know, who n- know nothing of politics and ask me what the MPs I, I speak to are like, you know, they are almost always 
better intentioned than people would think and uh, worse quality than people would want. Um, it is very rare that I meet an MP and think you are in it for the wrong reasons, but it is not infrequent that I meet an MP and think, oh, God, and that person is a Minister of State or whatever it may be. Or the Prime Minister for a brief time. Um, uh, Daniel, what do you think? That's different from saying that it's changed over time, and I'm less convinced by that. Uh, I mean, you know, I think I think you are, you know, you're certainly right, and that quite certainly right. If you get uh, MPs are elected for a whole variety of reasons, and their ministerial or executive capacity isn't necessarily among them, but some, you know, certainly first of all, it remains still the case that at the very top, people are very capable. Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak. Jeremy Hunt and Rachel Reeves, uh, these are people of the highest calibre that would be employed by any uh, organisation at the very apex of it. Indeed, uh, you know, in both cases, both cases of Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunet, they have been. Um, so um, you can still get very high. And it's always been the case that when you go a bit further down, uh, people are less good. I guess there's an element where you might think that um, people are less serious, but I think that's partly because the generation uh, that Roy Jenkins came from, you know, everybody in it was tempered by war. And um, then, uh, and also because there was less, those people were a little bit more serious, but more out of touch. Uh, so I would say that it's probably the case that our MPs are slightly less, uh, have slightly less gravitas, but are more connected. Um, they visit their constituency more, they're yeah. hardworking. Um, so there are other compensating qualities. But I would also say this, we're terrible employers, right? We we employ these people, we're insulting, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, stupid, um, everything that they, nothing they do is ever good enough. Um, and, um, you know, I think we could probably, before we Be tell better. them, to, we could try shaping up ourselves. <laughs> Danny Fickelstein and Henry Zeff with that. And of course, you read the stories we were discussing, just hit the links in the podcast description. And to read them, subscribe to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is Noam Chomsky on Putin, Corbyn and the end of the world. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. It's been said that Noam Chomsky is one of the most cited authors in history, up there with Shakespeare and the Bible even, and his work covers a huge range. Take his latest book, it's called Illegitimate Authority, 
a collection of interviews on subjects as varied as Joe Biden, climate change, abortion rights in the United States, the economic fallout from COVID-19, the war in Ukraine, Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping and much more besides. Noam, welcome to Times Radio. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And don't take too seriously the output of PR. (laughs) (laughs) Now, listen, I want to talk to you, first of all, about um, how you are described. If you're filling in a form, what's your occupation? Do you write down public intellectual, as other people might expect? What's your what's your job? I'm a university professor. I teach courses on linguistics, cognitive science, philosophy, social and political issues, like any other academic. Do you like being thought of a public intellectual, or is is the idea of a public intellectual a sort of old-fashioned thing in a world where everyone can pump out their opinions in public all the time? Well, I never took the concept public intellectual very seriously, and I don't take it very seriously now. (laughs) People like me who, and you, who have a relative amount of privilege are able to uh, enter the public domain with uh, our thoughts and opinions. They may be of some value, maybe not. Maybe the guy who's cleaning the street outside has better opinions, but not the privilege. Um, the, the start of the book, the preface of your book, says we live in dangerous and disconcerting times. I wonder whether you think now is a more dangerous and disconcerting time than when you, you first came to prominence back in the 60s with the Vietnam War, the Cold War. How does the times we live in today compare to the other times that you've lived through and written about? Far more dangerous. There's actually a pretty simple, straightforward measure of the danger. Not perfect, but as good a simple measure as we have. That's the doomsday clock. Uh, The analysts gave up minutes during the Trump years, moved to seconds to midnight, midnight's termination. Now moved it to 90 seconds to midnight. It's never been anywhere near that. And there are good reasons for it. We're, first of all, the danger of nuclear war is increasing, no question about that. But we are racing towards a precipice of environmental destruction of a couple of decades in which we could mitigate or control it, but we're racing in the opposite direction. Nothing could be more dangerous than that. That means reaching irreversible tipping points at which stage uh, just steady decline to the destruction of human life on Earth. We've never faced that before. Actually, we've been facing it in a way since August 6, 1945, but never at this level of danger. It's interesting that. I was going to ask you, the... If, you, if we are on that path, I suppose some people would say we've been on that path for a long time. And even the warning of getting closer to that point doesn't seem to make politicians, leaders of any country, of any political persuasion, seem to be grasped by the moment. Do you, do you, do you, you know, when you, when you talk there, it sounds apocalyptic. And yet, you know, we spend our time talking about trivial things. Well, the things 
things like the Ukraine war, the Yemen war, the total destruction of Iraq going on still. These are all very serious things, many more. Mm. But it's true that there's a background issues creeping up on us and very little is being done about it. Uh, the Maybe something is Goldman Sachs just had a study of uh, China. They claim that China is going to looks as if it's going to reach its uh, goals of of uh, net zero uh, fossil fuels much earlier than was expected. So maybe that's a good sign. <laughs> but uh, most of us are going completely in the wrong direction. Last year, fossil fuel production increased. Uh, the United States, is, which is right now the leading fossil fuel producers, expanding with new fields, uh, opening up federal lands for exploration for decades ahead. The fossil fuel companies are euphoric with the prospects for increased public support for their uh, enterprise of destroying life on Earth. So doesn't look good. You mentioned the uh, the war in Ukraine. Let, let's turn our attention to that. Um, certainly in in the UK, the left, uh, actually under people like Jeremy Corbyn, had argued that it wasn't Russia that was the enemy, it was the US that was destabilising the world. And then Russia invades a sovereign democratic country right on its on its border, starting a cl- conflict which has claimed tens of thousands of, of innocent lives. Does that not make clear that who the real threat to the world is. It's not the US, as the left is, has argued for a long time. It's, it's Vladimir Putin's Russia. Well, the invasion of Ukraine is plainly a war crime. Can put it in, you can't put it in the same category as greater war crimes, but it's a major one. The only evidence that we have, solid evidence, is United Nations estimates, uh, Pentagon estimates and so on. They estimate about... 8,000 civilians killed. That's a lot of people. What the United States and Britain do overnight, it's uh, presumably it's an underestimate. So let's say it's twice that much. That would put it at the level of the U.S.-backed invasion, Israeli invasion of Lebanon, which killed about maybe 20,000 people. Suppose it's off by a factor of 10. That is, the casualty rate is really 10 times as high as is claimed. Well, that would put it in the category of Ronald Reagan's terrorist atrocities in El Salvador, roughly on the order of 80,000. So it's here. Of course, Iraq is just another dimension. So it's serious. It's a terrible crime. You can understand why the global south does not take very seriously the eloquent uh, protestations of Western countries about this unique episode in history. Uh, They've been victims of far more. Maybe the Russians will go on to our level, maybe. Maybe they'll go on to, uh, you may recall how many people visited Baghdad while the United States and Britain were pulverizing it. Nobody visited Baghdad. In fact, anyone there, UN inspectors, uh, peace activists were taken out of the country because it was too dangerous when the U.S. and Britain go to war. No foreign leaders visiting it like 
I presume Russia could up the ante and move on to the U.S.-British style war. Maybe they could even go to the point of commemorating atrocities like Mariupol, the way the United States is now commemorating its uh, some of its worst atrocities in Iraq. One of the worst atrocities was the marine assault on Fallujah, beautiful city, one of the most beautiful in Iraq, destroyed, unknown numbers of people but, killed. But uh, it's interesting, though, Noam Chomsky, and we hear the same thing from, from the left here in the UK. It sounds... It has nothing to do with the left. These are, but it is. But, but right certainly from, from left-wing politics in the UK, this, this trying to create equivalence, they're an anti-West position... Um, it's not equivalent. Become well. You are you're drawing equivalence. You are drawing equivalence. You're saying that you've just you've literally just drawn equivalence with with the number of deaths in various places. I explain to people listening to this why what you're not saying is because Ronald Reagan did this or George Bush did that. That doesn't make what Vladimir Putin's done all right, does it? Of course not. I said it's a major crime, but there's no equivalence that following the party line, I gave figures, no equivalence. Maybe the casualty toll is 10 times as high as is estimated. Well, that would make it like Reagan's crimes in El Salvador. It's not equivalent. But I suppose some people listening to this will think you're seeking to excuse what President no, that's. Done. That is a fabrication of the right wing. I am not seeking to excuse anything. I said it's a terrible war crime. That's not excusing anything. I'm talking about the extreme hypocrisy of claims about how this is the worst thing that ever happened when it's a fraction of what we do all the time. That's why the global south is watching with ridicule as a pompous uh, Western commentators try to lecture them on why don't you join us in opposing this terrible crime. So a leader gets up and says, how can you not join us when a country is attacking another country? They laugh and ridicule. That's what you've been doing to us forever. Do you think that Britain is complicit in the same way or is it specifically an America problem? Did Britain take part in the invasion of Iraq? Did Britain take part, in fact, a leading role in the destruction of Libya? Yes, Britain is more than complicit. Is Britain sending arms to Saudi Arabia to implement the worst humanitarian crisis in the world in Yemen? Of course. I want to take you back to something you said in August 2020. You said that uh, there was a Russian red line for 30 years not to move NATO to our borders. You were talking about the, the idea of Ukraine going into NATO would be a red line. Actually, what we've seen as a result of Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine is, is Ukraine becoming much closer to the West. Finland and Sweden are now joining NATO as a result of what Vladimir Putin's been doing. Do you think Vladimir Putin miscalculated that he drew red lines thinking that they would never be crossed? Well, first of all, the talk about a red line, it's not me. It's virtually the entire U.S. diplomatic corps, current head of the CIA, past heads, the defense secretary, Halkish defense secretary of uh, Bush, 
uh, William Perry, defense secretary of Clinton, they're the ones who've mm. been saying that this is a red line. Don't attribute it okay. to me. I'm just quoting that. Yeah. Okay. So it's almost the entire top of the political policy class and diplomatic corps who know anything about Russia have been arguing for 30 years that it is reckless and dangerous to try to cross what is a red line for every Russian leader. Yeltsin, Gorbachev, everyone, enter, allowing Ukraine and Georgia to enter NATO. That's been clear for 30 years. Uh, so uh, did Putin make a mistake? Of course. Not only, not only was it a criminal act of aggression, but it was an act of criminal stupidity. Uh, he's driven Europe into Washington's control. It's a gift to the United States uh, on a silver platter. Uh, Finland and Sweden is a different issue. They have absolutely no reason to join NATO, and they know it perfectly well. Their reason for joining NATO is they have advanced military systems. They've been pretty well integrated into NATO operations for many years. Joining NATO officially opens up new markets for their, in, for their military industry, uh, a new potential for attaining advanced equipment and so on. There hasn't ever been, and they know it, the slightest threat to Sweden or Finland from Russia. Why not? In fact, well, but, we what, have, but why not? When, when, when you know, we were told that we were told months before Russia invaded Ukraine, there was no prospect of them invading Ukraine repeatedly by Russia. Russia, 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 Russia yeah. said that they were not going to invade Ukraine, and then they did. Why? Why wouldn't yes, if you were, if you were Finland or Sweden? Why wouldn't you join NATO? And they've been saying for thirty years, not only Russia, every leader, but every top official in the United States with any interest in it, that if Ukraine moves towards entering NATO, it's a, no Russian leader would ever accept it. Take a look at what happened in 2021, 2022. We have a record. The Biden administration offered an enhanced program to Ukraine, enhanced program for entering NATO. It increased weapon supplies, interoperability of weapons. The attacks in Donbass continued. Uh, this does not justify the invasion. But it's a background. And yet it does sound a bit like you are explaining it, because why can't Ukraine join NATO? They're an independent, sovereign country. Why can't they join NATO? What would happen if Mexico decided to join a Chinese-run international military alliance with uh, sending heavy weapons to Mexico aimed at the United States? Uh, interoperability of Chinese and uh, Mexican uh, military systems, it'd be blown away. You know that. So you, but you're then drawing comparisons between NATO and China and Russia. That you, you, you see the, an equivalence between... I don't. NATO is a much more aggressive alliance. NATO has invaded uh, Yugoslavia, invaded Libya, invaded Ukraine, backed up the invasion of Ukraine. In the West, we're not allowed to think it because we're deeply controlled by adherence to the party line. 
But so it sounds to me like you are justifying the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You're saying the very act no, of the very act of wanting to enter NATO is grounds for Russia feeling sufficiently threatened to then invade Ukraine. The Western Party line, which Western intellectuals are instructed to adhere to uh, rigorously, says that if you tell the facts, that's justifying Russia. No, it's not justifying Russia. There's not even a hint of that, not even a remote hint. It's saying, here are the facts that we should face. That's the facts. If you get out of the little Western propaganda bubble, so okay, let, 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 okay. States, let, let me put let me put something to you. And we've seen it in certainly in British politics, the anti-West left, as I would describe them in the UK, where a position of being. Uh, anti-British imperialism, anti-American imperialism, being so anti-West, essentially, led you to an alliance with Vladimir Putin, who was a new type of Russian leader, and it was all hunky-dory up until the point he invades Ukraine, and now you're trying to, you're essentially trying to justify it by the back door. He's let you down, Vladimir Putin. Will you please stop reiterating the Western party line and listen to what I'm saying? There's not a word of justification. There's no anti You keep saying that, and then you keep making a justification. It was because of NATO, it was because of Afghanistan, or it was because of uh, Libya. No, it's not a justification. Listen to the words, okay? There is nothing to justify the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Understand? Yep. But we can ask, why is the Global South collapsing in ridicule when it hears the kinds of things that you're talking about good reasons what do you mean and we should be when you say the global you've used the phrase a couple of times explain what you mean by the global south uh, india indonesia south africa brazil does colombia do you want me to list them they're not lining up with uh, vladimir putin though are they no, they're not lining up with Vladimir Putin. That's your reiteration of the Western Party line. They're taking a neutral position. What they're saying is they regard this as a proxy war between Russia and the United States over Ukrainian bodies. They're saying we don't want to take part in it. That's not pro-Putin. That's the Western Party line. We should be able to escape the Western propaganda bubble and simply look at the facts. Let's zoom out a bit more then, just finally, where we talk about politics. How do countries like Britain and America break away from the, as you put it, Western party line? Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, I think, just agreed with you on lots of things, actually, in, in politics. He he went to the country twice and he lost twice. It turns out the country did not want Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister. Well, you know perfectly well that that's not what happened. Jeremy Corbyn won an enormous victory in 2017. No, he didn't. The entire, he didn't. Yes, the biggest victory that Labour had won in a generation. No, he wasn't. He lost. The, he didn't become prime minister. Then what happened is the British establishment, including your newspaper, came down on him with a ton of bricks with false, deceitful propaganda about uh, anti-Semitism, all exposed as lies. Totally. That's just not true. I'm afraid that's just not true. Labour MPs left the Labour Party because of anti-Semitism 
uh, when Jeremy Corbyn was leader. It was nothing to do with, with what I was doing. Labour MPs quit the party in protest at Jeremy yeah. Corbyn's record. Absolutely. The parliamentary party, the Blairite parliamentary party, did not want to see... In fact, they said it. We have the documents in the Labour files. Say we do not want to lose our party, the party that we own, to this effort to develop a popular-based party working for working people and the poor. We don't want to lose our party. No, that's not that. what they said. That's not what they said. They did not want Jeremy Corbyn. That is what they said. You can read it they, in the Labour They did files. not say they did not want a government that wanted to act for the poor. What they said was they did not want someone. Well, I added with, that. Yes, exactly. They said they didn't want to lose their party. To a, yeah, I added to a man with well, well, a track record it. of tolerating anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and uh, taking anti-West positions, including wanting to give Russia the benefit of the doubt over the Salisbury poisonings was one of the big things that they they protested right. on. there's no there's no anti-west positions for example when jeremy corbyn uh takes the position that we ought to try to move towards a negotiated settlement in ukraine that's not an anti-west position it's an anti-ukraine position the party line it's not a party line i don't have a party line i'm just asking you a question about yes. jeremy corbyn twice went up for election and twice he didn't become prime minister that's two defeats let's read let's go back to the facts in 2017 he lost the labor he won he lost big, he lost sorry there was the biggest labor in history then came it was, the no it wasn't entire, no it wasn't he lost then that it was the biggest labor gain in history now, on what ground on what, no it wasn't on what basis was it then came the enormous establishment attack Cross the board, right to left, it's what's called left guardian, with deceitful lies all since exposed about charges of anti-Semitism. No, that's not true. I'm sorry, the, the Equality and Human Rights Commission in the UK, the watchdog set up by the Labour Party, found the Labour Party guilty of not protecting Jews within the party. Found less anti-Semitism in the Labour Party than among the Tories. This has all been exposed in detail by the Labour files. You can read it in Al Jazeera. The British press has chosen to mostly suppress it and marginalise it, but that's a problem for the British press. Corbyn has since been virtually kicked out of the Labour Party. His effort to try to develop a popular-based party, participatory party that would serve the interests of working people and the poor was smashed by the British establishment. It's a scandal, okay? But it has nothing to do with these other things that we're talking about. And finally then, um, let's round this off. Let's try and be a bit more optimistic. Do you think that we can turn these things around? You were talking about climate change before, global conflict. Will the next century be better than the last there won't be organized human life a century from now unless we reverse the course that leadership is now taking you read the latest ipcc report i'm sure okay pretty accurate uh ipcc are consensus reports so they're by definition conservative lowest common common denominator yeah yeah the current one they 
took off the gloves. They were so desperate by now that they said, well, tell the truth. What are Western leaders doing? Mostly racing in the opposite direction. Well, no, Thomas. Here. I, I was hoping to end on a on a more ch- upbeat note, but I fear that I fear that the the future might not be that upbeat. Noam Chomsky, thank you so much for joining us on Times Radio. Thank you. Noam Chomsky there, and that brings us to the end of today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Goodbye.